Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Jeff Teagues, welcome to the Center of the Universe, or I should say, welcome back to the Center of the Universe. It is good to be back. Yeah. And now a whole new year. Yeah, a whole a whole new year. Has the new, new year been kind to you? So far, um, you know, January is recognized as Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month. So the, the country and the world shines a spotlight on this crime that we look at throughout the year. So we do try to take that opportunity to, to jump onto that and help people understand what this crime is like. Um, but interestingly, there, there were, there was some angst too. You know, I, I've been out this fight in this fight for eight years, right after I retired. And there's a lot of people in the space who are just like, look, we've had human trafficking awareness month since 2010 and we're losing every year. Can we stop like having this month and actually do something about it? So I'm conflicted, right? Because people are busy. Everyone has their own thing. I appreciate the fact that there's a name for it. There's a, there's a focus behind it, but I do also kind of sit on that camp of, man, how, how long are we just going to talk about this? You know, when are we really going to do something substantive? So yeah, that's how it's kicked off the year so far. All right. Well, do you want to talk about skull games first and then we'll uh, touch on the book and then, and then spend a lot of time talking about your uh, Delta experiences, what you can talk about. Whatever works, buddy. Yeah, whatever right, works. Right, let, me, let, me, yeah. let me tell a story that I told just before we start recording. I, I I work out with a buddy of mine three or four uh, mornings a week, and we were about halfway through the, the workout, and he asked me from time to time about the podcast. And he said, who's coming on next? And I said, well, Jeff Teagues is coming on. I'm having him back on to talk about his book, uh, his Delta Force experiences, and Skull Games. And I, I talked a little bit more about you. And then he goes, what's his name again? And I said, Jeff Teagues. He goes, I'm reading a book by a guy named Jeff Teagues. There's no way it's the same person. I'm like, what's the name of the book? And he goes, where have all the heroes gone? And by the way, since we're recording video, I'll just, I'll show it. Thank here. you. It's a good looking book. Yeah, it is. Look at that. There, there's your name at the bottom. <laughs> uh, and, and he found it independently. Really? I confirmed that he was not listening to me when I was talking about you a couple of months ago because he, he found the book. Through another podcast you've been on. I, you've been on other podcasts, I assume. I have, yeah. 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 And so he, he found you through one of those podcasts. I'm not sure which one it was, but uh, yeah, he, he I really enjoyed reading it. And he said uh, very complimentary things without me. I mean, he had no reason to lie to me about that. It, it's been a really cool trip. I mean, the I think part of it is this, you know, the, the intent of the book changed over time. And the end result was was something fairly complicated, right? Like I, I jump between stories and I try to weave these things together. It didn't start that way. It, it started very much A, B, C, D, you know. And, and as I developed and worked through this and and studied, I had some I had some mentors that helped me, you know, explore different ways of doing it. It was my fear at the end when I when I finally hit send and print this thing was it are people going to get lost? You know, like I'm jumping around a lot. Do I have enough connections? And yet. I really trust that, and I enjoy movies, stories, books, that they don't tell you everything, right? They allow you to figure it out and, and draw some of those connections. But that's that can be a, a, a tenuous balance. You don't want to lose the reader. So that was my biggest fear, was that I was jumping around too much and and maybe not being clear enough on, on some of these things. But man, I, I've been super pleased 
um, people have really enjoyed it. And then, and then that, I was fearful of that with the audio because it's it's one thing to have it in your hands, but to be driving or working out and listening to the audio. Um, but people have have really commented on how they enjoyed the jumping back and forth. You know, I tried to put those little cliff cliffhangers in there. Um, so the the book's working, man. I could I couldn't be more pleased of you know just the effort that went into it and folks like your buddy who find it and read it and they're enjoying it. It's really it's really a neat relationship. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, Jeff. I I, I grew up. Uh, I, I've read not the entire Bible, but I've read a, a decent portion of it. And you, your telling of the David and Goliath story is is the best telling I've I've ever heard. It's not even close. And and. I mean, do you know Dr. Tony Crisp? I don't. I'm going to write that name down, though, right now. After the recording, I'll tell you about uh, Tony. Uh, You you guys are kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Uh, I I can't tell you uh, that there's been a better telling of the last days of of Jesus. Ah, thank you. You you nailed. I mean, that's a horrible term, but you you (laughs) horrible term, completely (laughs) unintentional, (laughs) not intended. it, it, it was uh, it was a great telling. You, you had me. I, I could not put that section of the book down. I really could not. I, I had to go through the entire thing. And um, I, where do you get that from? Are you just an ex- you're you're good. You're a very good writer, but you have to have uh, unbelievable research effort put into. I, I I'm I'm studying and listening. Um, so two things. One, I'm I'm really glad you you commented on the crucifixion piece because that's moving to me. Like I, I found it interesting, you know, and even the idea of a soldier, you know, there's, I was trying to break apart some of these stereotypes, you know, and even like the, the Roman soldier, that, that, that guy wasn't a schlub, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, especially these guys, these were seasoned professionals and, and really studying at what that looked like. And even, even the nuances of fulfilling that prophecy. And, you know, we, we show the pictures of the, the nails in the hands all the time. Well, we, we know that's just not possible, you know, like you can't, you can't hang on that. So, you know, all these things. So even the simple idea of, oh, this was considered from here up was considered the hand back then. You know, all these things. So I've, I've really been been digging into it for years. And um, I, I'm glad what you said, because I really am standing on the shoulders of, of people that have gone before me. You know, so I, I've tried to put together dozens and dozens of, of different resources and references. I think I don't know what the I think it ended up being. I can't remember if it was 200 or 400 references. You know, but one of the things that's interesting when I when I first set out to write the book, I did not want it to be a reference book because I don't like I don't like those. I don't you know, I don't I I didn't want it to. I wanted it to be entertaining and engaging. And then I reached a point where I was like, geez, man, I'm just I'm just taking too much stuff from other people. I have to reference where these ideas came from. But what what I hadn't done was taken good, taken very good notes. So I'm like, where where did this come from? And I asked, I asked a, a friend of mine that's um, an author, I said, can I just quote Wikipedia? And they're like, well, I mean, you can, people really don't. Like, it's not really a, it's not really a, a viable source. I'm like, yeah, but this isn't a research paper. All, all I want to be able to do is point to the fact that I didn't make this up. And I mean, other people have said this, this is, if you, th- if you consider Wikipedia common knowledge, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, ju- yeah. I just want to make sure that this is referenced, that this isn't, this isn't me so half of the uh, the quotes in there or the references are Wikipedia. I don't know how many books are out there that quote Wikipedia as often as I do, but that was my point. It's like, dude, it's it's two guys talking, man. You think you, you want me to quote some some paper from 
you know, the 14th century meeting of the the, the, the popes. Like, you know, like, like I'll just quote Wikipedia and you can reference it and you can go back and forth. Um, and then for those of the, for those people that are uh, have the the digital copy, it's easier to go back and forth. I don't know if you picked up on this at all. There, there's all sorts of little Easter eggs in there as well with with the referencing, you know, things that um, I thought of. Like, for example, one of the titles is is called This Woman's Work. Mm. And that's a that's a Kate Bush song. And I it, it almost it makes me cry almost every time I, wow. I hear the song because it, it, it's just this. It's yeah. So, you know, there, if you if you didn't catch it, you can go through it again. Or those of you that are picking up the book. There's all sorts of Easter eggs that are referenced in, in the back uh, that just didn't make sense to fit into the the main body, you know. Ah, uh, gotcha. I it's the, one of the other stories that really stuck with me was not a, a biblical story; it was one of your combat stories. And I I don't remember if you were in Iraq or Afghanistan or or maybe I, I, I'm pretty sure it was one of those two. And you had a wounded soldier. You were the lead. You were you were in command of uh, the action. And but this guy was wounded. And you were the closest one to him and you were tormented about whether to provide uh, yeah. first aid or to be entirely focused on the mission at hand. And you eventually made the decision to, to go save the guy. I'm laughing because you said you, obviously you wanted to move sideways because th that's where your protection was. And all you could think was, please don't hit my balls. <laughs> don't hit my balls. I mean, I laughed out loud when I read that. Well, and you, cause you can relate, right? Like, you know, and I think we, 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 we often in our lives, we often make these quick deals with God, you know, and that was, and that was my deal with guys. Like, look, I'm going to go out and get this kid. I do not mind getting shot. I don't want to die. And I don't want to get shot in the balls. Like that though. Can we, can we just have a quick agreement? And I felt like we did a little fist bump and, and I ran out there. Um, but you know, the thing that was, was interesting too, that's hard. It was, it's really hard to explain is that I was much more concerned about getting shot and waking up in the hospital with all my, all my men around me going, Hey hero, you know, cause it's, you know, I, I make, I make this joke like, Hey, going and saving a wounded guy, that's NCO business. That's not officer business, you know? And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but there's also a reality to it. Like the officer is not supposed to be bogged down into that level of the fight. Like there's a, there's a whole bunch of things happening that I'm the only one talking to these different assets and controlling all that. So if I'm running around playing hero, you know, that's the, the one job I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing. Um, but, but like you read in the book, you know, I, I looked around, there was no one else. And man, this kid, they just kept shooting this kid. And uh, I mean, yeah, you just had to make the move. And I didn't get shot in the balls. <laughs> I, I imagine your life would have taken a, a really bad turn or a, certainly a turn anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It would be different. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, all right, so the the book is uh, I highly recommend it. If you want me to uh, to uh, talk about it in other ways, I certainly am willing to. Uh, in fact, I'll bring it up when I talk to other people. That's that's how good the book is. So, uh, Jeff, I'm really glad I met you. I'm really glad you wrote this book, and I'm I'm glad I I took the opportunity to read it. Thank you. I uh, I'm working on a sequel. I don't know what the name is. It might be a little too cheesy. Where have all the heroes gone to? I don't know. But uh, it, it, it'll it go much faster because I have the template. I'm going to, you know, I, I already have the outline. I have the stories. I've, I have what, another 25 chapters of stories to tell, same style. And I'm, I'm paying attention now. I'm, 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 re I'm referencing the, 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 my start points from, uh, from Jump Street. So yeah, no, yeah, I have a whole bunch of stuff to, to share your, again. Your Wikipedia references. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and some of the some of the some of the deeper ones, you know, because I, you know, you never want to shortchange somebody, you know, and I, and even the even the Yahweh story of 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 the the holy breath, you know, I don't remember there there's there's really there's only been two people that I've heard reference that. One was Richard Rohr, and one was um, uh, Bell. What's his name? Rob Bell. Um, and you can like those guys or not like those guys. I don't remember which one I heard talk about it first, but it it floored me, dude. Like yeah. I, just you know, like like you're saying, I've been a believer all my life, and I I no one has ever talked about that idea. That that the, that God's breath, His name, is the sound of your breathing, and how that's all interconnected between plants and animals and humans. And I mean that that changed my life. And I'm hoping, you know, people are are reading that and and it's changing their life. But again, I didn't come up with it. It was yeah, yeah. I was just as floored <laughs> as some people no, are. You know, but I'm honored for someone to say. This guy Jeff Teague said, "Yeah, that's cool. I'll take that." Even though it was years and years before I came, I found out. Yeah. Well, let me ask uh, the title. What, what does the title mean to you, and why did you go with that title? The original title was "There's Always More to the Story" because it, it it really was focused on the Bible and the the additional things. It was almost like an homage to Paul Harvey. Remember the rest of the story? Good day. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to love that as a kid, and I read those books, and then. His son carried on afterwards. That's what the title was for years. And then when I started to uh, throw in some of my own stories, I, I was trying to come up with some, some different ideas. And quite honestly, I don't, I, I think the, the company that I worked with, Scribe Media, I think we, they helped me come up with the title and they helped me come up with the, the cover art, both of which I think are just, are just beautiful. Um, and I think part of the title came about when I really narrow down, like, who am I writing to? You know, and you, you hear, you hear people say this all the time. Who's your audience? Who's your target audience? Who's your target audience? And I really, I really realized it was my two boys. Mm. They're in their, they're in their mid twenties. I've, I've raised them as believers. They've lived in Israel. They know a bunch of these stories, but, but there's a lot of stuff that they, that they haven't taken the time to dig into. You know, there's a, there's certainly a lot of stuff as I was writing my military stories, it almost became like, hey guys, this this is what I was doing. This is why I missed so many of your birthdays. This is why you were home alone with mom for so long. And I, you know, I'm the guy that gets the little ribbons on my on my uniform. You know what I mean, and all this type of stuff. But my, in many ways, my sons and my wife um, and my family and the people that had, that really kept things together, they're my heroes, and and that was heroic. Um, and I think if we, if we could focus on that a little bit more, define, redefine what heroism is, you know, I think we're a little bit out of whack on what, we, on what we look up to mothering, fathering, friendship, honesty, family to, to keep that together in this day and age is something to me, incredibly heroic. And my boys did not follow my footsteps. They are not in the military. They will not go into the military, but they are some of the kindest, gentlest, bravest young men that I've ever met. And they don't need to test themselves in war, um, and, and I'm glad I was able able to to pass that on to them. And both of them have read it and came back to me and said, "I, I get it now." My brother, um, I was largely estranged from my brother 
because there's a cost, you know, my, my job for, you know, 10, 15 years was to take men and women into combat and bring them home to their families. And that's, that's literally a life and death responsibility. So my boys got first, you know, first, uh, you know, the best part of me after that, my wife got second. And then it, it really, it, there was a distance between second and third when it came to my family and brother and sister. And I had a discussion with my, my brother just a, a few weeks ago. And he said, Hey, I get it. You know, it, I was hurt. It hurt me. You know, you, you didn't talk, you didn't call, you know, it, it seemed like you forgot about us. I was resentful. He's like, but I, I, I get it. And you know, I love you. And, uh, I mean, dude, that's the power of a book, right? <laughs> no, that's what, that's awesome. That's amazing that that that's one of the outcomes. Yeah. You know, and same with my boys, you know, like they, cause we sheltered them, you know, they knew, they knew I was a commando, you know, they knew I was going back and forth to war, but I mean, they're, they were little boys. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it, it, it has improved all my relationships. And again, I, I, I thank God that he's given me the time to just explain some of this to people. You know, um, I had another call a, a couple weeks ago, uh, Bill that's in there. He's a, he's a good friend. And, uh, I mean, he was my best friend for, for, for years and his mom read the book and she called me and she said, I, I want to thank you for, for representing Billy. Like you, you got him, you know? So when you, when you read about Billy and his, just his, his just deadpan remarks and his, his quiet confidence, you know, just a, an incredible guy. So it's the same thing. Like I, how do you put a price on the idea that you're, your mother and father and brother and sister and sons and wife know you a little more, you know, and have a little bit more grace for all of this, the anger that I've had or, 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 you know, the, just the, the different things that have crept into our life. Um, and then being able to honor some of my mates that, uh, that are no longer here and have their parents acknowledge that. I mean, bro, could, could, could we be more, <laughs> could we be more humbled? I mean, just yeah. praise God. Uh, Bill sounds like an amazing guy. Uh, obviously he left, left, uh, the world too early. Um, and that reminds me of the snake bite story and your arm swelling up at best ranger competition. How did that competition end for you and Bill? Uh, I had to pull out. So yeah, as soon as, as soon as we reported that I had been bit by a snake, cause I wanted to get an opinion from, uh, from a medic. That the, the medic showed up and said, "Hey, man, you you can't continue." And I, and I, by that time, I felt fine. Uh, but he explained to me, you know, these these small. I think it was watermoxin. I can't remember if it was watermoxin or cottonmouth. You know, these small snakes. They don't they don't regulate the amount of venom they put into you. So you, we don't know how much venom is in you. Yeah. And you could be out there on the land nav course, you know, humping through the woods at two in the morning, and it can hit your heart, and that's it. You know, there's no one there that can help you. So uh, yeah, I laid down in a tent with a guy observing me and uh, slept for a few hours until I was in the clear. They had all different anti-venoms lined up. Cause I, at that time we weren't sure what, what type of snake it was that bit me. Uh, Billy laid down next to me on the floor. I was on a cot. He, he took a nap and then we woke up and uh, cheered our buddies on for the, for the rest of the competition. Yeah. That's that, that it's a bummer, especially for uh, you and Bill's personalities. That's the last thing you want to do was quit. Yeah. It does. Uh, it, it, it feels like unfinished business, but, but, you know, when you're able to say, you know, wow, we were winning best ranger one year, but I got bit by a snake. That's, that that's better than, you know, I just wussed <laughs> out 
and fell into second place. <laughs> Bitten by a venomous snake that could have put enough venom in me to kill me at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so how many times did you compete? In best Twice. Okay. Twice, and I coached once. Yeah. Okay. How'd you do the, uh, the other time? The, the first time I took, I, the very first time I was a young corporal, I think, and we took eighth. And then uh, I coached a team to second, I believe. Uh, that was right when I was getting out. And then the one with Billy, I, I, uh, I had to drop out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And there's, it's a soft spot in my heart. I mean, it's, it's, if, if people are ever in that area during that time frame, it, it is, it's a wonderful event to, to witness and notice. And just the, the patriotism is through the roof. I can't, I, yeah, like, like no other uh, time and location on earth, yeah. probably when that's going yeah. on. All right. Uh, last question on the book. Um, and I'm certainly open to talking about the book more if you want, but from the time you had the idea for the book to the, to the date of publication, when the, when the book actually was published, because did the book come out first or did the audio or they come out the same day? They came out they around the same, they were all done the same time. The audio lagged in development, but, but by and large, they were done the same. Um, so from the very, very start, dude, I would say, man, 2009 was when the seed was planted. That, that, that's when I was at, at the Valley of Elah. And, and I tell that story of, you know, they had the idea wrong where the Israelites were lined up in the Philistines. So I, I had started doing the investigating in 2009. Um, and then when we lived in Israel, 2000. Uh, 12 and 13 did more digging. I don't even remember when I started writing. So I would say probably seriously, I started writing probably after I got out in, in 2015. So um, the idea was 2009 to 23. Wow. When you think of it that way, a 14 year idea. And then the writing process was probably a good five, five, six years with really one solid year of like, okay, you know, cause when, what I ended up doing was I had a version of the book written and then I went to this writing workshop and kind of got, got, you know, educated uh, on different ideas, went back to the start and then went, and then went forward. So um, I think uh, this second version, I can do it all in a year. Yeah. What's your process for writing? I kind of go with the flow. So one of the one of the things that I don't have in place right now, but they re, they really try to emphasize is is just to write, you know. And the the first thing you do is you 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 put a process together. So you have an outline, you have a template, you got the points that you're trying to make, and then you just start writing. And you it's almost like a rough draft, almost uh, just 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 write, you know. And you want to write 250, 500 words a day, and and just write it, just to just to get it out onto that piece of paper. And then you go back in and revise everything. That's the process that I'm in now, but I'm also in that research process. So there, there are days where I won't get any writing in because I'll just be, you know, but it, it's, to me, it's like a treasure hunt. So just, just like you, I'm, you know, sometimes I, I, it feels, I hope it feels like I'm kind of taking you on this treasure hunt, yep. you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm on that hunt first. It just, it takes me <laughs> days and weeks and months to keep kicking over rocks and kicking over rocks and being like, Oh, I don't think that's right. Or that's a dead end. Or even honestly praying and asking God to just kind of guide me. And um, what I really love about retirement is you, you kind of go with the flow. Like if, if I, if I sit down and I start writing one day and I, and I'm into it and it's working, I'll go as long as I can, you know, and other days I'll sit down and I'll start writing and, and, and it's just a chore and then I'll just stop, you know? So that's, you know, I, 
I like that. I don't know. It's hard for people to have that as a battle rhythm. Um, but again, I like being retired at the age that I am. You know, I, that's how I am with most stuff now. It's how I work out. If I feel like it that day, I'll just keep on going. If it just isn't there, I'll go back home and have a cup of coffee. You know, so there's just a, a, a different type of type of discipline. Yeah, I imagine uh, there's a part of the book that you uh, ex- enjoyed extremely. And then there were probably another part or two that you're like, this is this is not really my my jam, but it, but it belongs in the book. But it, but here it is. And I, and I got through it. Well, I, th- I think th- there's a couple things there. So one is it, it, it really did start out as the exploration of these Bible stories. And that was like, you know, that, w- that was its own thing. That was, that was really fun. And then when I started to bring in these military stories, that became, that became very cathartic for me. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that, that I need, I, I felt like I needed to get this out, you know, and this is a real, this is a real tenuous thing, right? Like when coming from Delta Force, we don't write books. We don't go on podcasts like that. That's the general rule. We just, we don't do that, you know? And then, and then, and you hear these guys are like, well, I felt compelled and I'm one of those guys now. I'm like, I, I, I feel compelled to say something, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I, I don't feel compelled to say something about me. I, I feel compelled to say something about this, this faith journey. You know, th- again, the Bible, the battlefield and, and, and home and these things that, that our guys are struggling with. So, that ended up being very cathartic, which I didn't realize. And and there were versions in there where I was mad, you know, and I was, I was naming names and I was, and I was, you know, I had, I had some resentment um, and I got over it, you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, even that one where I talk about um, early on with uh, private hail in, in Panama and he didn't uh, you know, I, I felt on many levels, very, very betrayed. This guy was supposed to, engage at this guard check and he and he didn't and i find out the next morning that he doesn't feel like he's got what it takes to to kill a man and i tell you man it 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 wasn't until i was writing that story 30 years later that i realized yeah i have a right to be indignant about this like that's that he you know but part of it was i was worried about how it reflected on me you know what I mean? Like he was my guy. I was his team leader and he wasn't ready. How does that reflect on me? And I had to own that, you know, like I had to own the fact that I've been, I've been kind of pissed off at this kid for 30 years for failing to be the ranger that I expected him to be. But, but part of that reality was I felt it reflected on me, you know, and I'm, that's one of those stories. I hope people really take to heart because that's one of those things that really drives me nuts is when you see fathers living vicariously through their children, yeah. which we say that, that that doesn't sound that bad living vicariously, but no, no, it's when your kid does something and you think it reflects on you. If they're good at a sport, that looks good on you. If they're good at school, that, that looks good on you. If they behave appropriately, that looks good on you. And man, and I warn, I warn fathers, if you're, if you're ever, ever, ever thinking about one of your kids on how, whatever it is they're doing reflects on you, stop it. Stop it. You're it's going not, down a terrible, terrible path. It's not healthy for anybody. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I tell that story with Hale. I tell that story um, with the with the two-star officer on target. You know, I, I was mad at that guy. I I, I'm, I, I'm mad at him reading it. Yeah. But but the thing is, is, you know, I, 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 I clearly think that I'm in the right in many ways. But but I also understand and recognize 
what might have been going through this man's head is I'm a two-star officer. If if I get killed on this battlefield in Afghanistan, that that is a that is a note in history for all time. What that can do to set back this war. So I, I give that guy some grace. Uh, if he ever reads the book, he knows who he is. I'd love to. I'd love to sit down and have this discussion. Where you know, because you 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 realize you're 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 doing two competing things. You know, even even the job of a Delta Force operator is counterterrorism, and much of what we were doing was counterinsurgency or or even nation building. You know, I can remember when I was uh, uh, in special forces in 10th group, we were in Samara and I lived, I lived in Samara for, I, I think it was eight months and Delta force came in and they just, they like, they killed some dudes. They captured some guys. They, they just made a mess. And I thought, guys, like I live here, whatever you want to know, ju just ask me. But my op cycle was counterinsurgency, right? Their op cycle was counterterrorism. So those things come at loggerheads and they move at different op cycles. You know, when I, and when I, one of the very first things I ever did when I got to the unit and I was working in, a, in an operations job was trying to figure out how to make these two cycles work. A counterinsurgency cycle works on 72 hours at the fastest, like that whole, that whole churn between targeting, getting out there. It really works on, a, on almost like a weekly cycle, whereas a Delta Force counterterrorism cycle, it's 24 hours, if not 12 hours. So you got to figure out how to keep this spin as a counterterrorism as this counterinsurgency continues to move. So, you know, there, there are things that are often at odds and a young tactical commander on the battlefield and a higher ranking strategic commander up at headquarters, those things often, often clash. And I'll tell you, I, I welcome those stories or that, that, that discussion at, at any time. Um, but, but what I would also say again, and this may be me getting too big for, you know, bigger for my britches, uh, we didn't lose tactical fights. We lost the strategic fight. Yep. So what, 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 where's the disconnect? If we're winning every tactical battle, but, you, but losing strategically, somebody's missing the boat. And to me, I think too often our military leaders are looking up on how is this going to reflect them on them again? How does this reflect on me for my career afterwards or in politics or in business or whatever versus Man, you need to listen to your warfighters. You need to listen to these troop commanders and these platoon sergeants, and these platoon leaders, and these company these first sergeants. You need to listen to them. And when they tell you the Afghans are not ready to get their country handed over to them, you need to listen. You know, when the ambassador tells you that the, that the Afghans are ready, you need to take that with a grain of salt. So, again, one of the things I'm hoping is is people understand and recognize. These, these innate frictions between all this different stuff. And we just sit down and talk. Yeah, a good leader is going to be listening to peers, his subordinates and his superiors and taking it all in and making uh, an assessment and taking making a decision and then moving. Uh, I, I will say that the from my perspective, the typical path to climb a ladder, whether it's in the military or it's corporate America or uh, even a small business, Climbing that ladder, somebody has to make the decision to allow you to get to that next level uh, or that next rung. And yeah, they fall in the trap of trying to be pleasing to all of those who can influence that decision. And uh, the, the private or the specialist, they, they really, many of them don't care. Now, the best leaders, and there are four stars out there, I'm sure, certainly one and two stars that 
actually do listen and they make the best leaders, but those are the exception, not the rule typically. And, and, you know, that's, that goes back again to where, you know, with your question of, of, of the title and where have all the heroes gone, you know, that, that was the thing that I understood of this disconnect where it's like, do you not understand like how I see my duty and my role? You, you advertise, we need people like this for this job, you know, and I, and I went through assessment and selection and you trained me and now I'm here doing it. And you, you expect me to be somebody else or expect me to, to do something else? Like what, what, what is, what is that disconnect? Um, and that's the same way again, when you have a, a young man or, or a daughter, I'll, I'll use young men cause they're my boys. Like, dude, a teenage boy, he's, he's figuring it out. He's going to be rebellious. He's going to take risks, you know, like that's, that's his role in life is a teenage boy. So what, like, why would you ask him to be something that he isn't, you know? And as, and, and to me as a father in that strategic space, I'm trying to let my kids survive in some of these knucklehead tactical decisions that they're making. Um, and again, I think it, you know, I, we've got some granddaughter, I have a granddaughter now and, and, and I've, we've got um, daughters-in-law and e- even that dynamic is like, man, you, you need to understand how men and women, boys and girls grow up. And if you can create that safe place for them to just explore and make mistakes. Um, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm hoping people that aren't soldiers, that's what they get out of it. That that's what I felt like I did in war is I created a, a safe place with men and women that I trusted. They had their left and right limits and anything in between that, man, do what you think is right. And we'll come out on the other side. Okay. Yeah, I, I, thanks for reminding me of the two star, and I think yeah that that set of stories because he was with you. It, it, I, I think if I recall correctly, he was with you for more than a couple of days, right? I th- I think it was maybe thirty six hours. I think he came in one night, and then he he definitely spent the full day, you know, trying to get this target hit. Yeah, yeah. And, and did he think he was helping by being there? I don't know. You know, I think. I think there there came a time when it became the thing to do for for our these higher officers where they would they would come out on the on the battlefield. And on on one level, it was appreciated, you know, like hey, the, the boss is here, he gets to see what it is, what it is we're doing. Hopefully they understand it. Um but but I don't know. Um I did I never had good experiences with it, you know, because it 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 to fight and win on the battlefield is ugly. It's brutal. It's blood, guts, dirt, fire, pain, noise. It's ugly. And unless you are a one, two, three-star officer that appreciates that, it's going to come as a shock and you're not going to like it. And you're going to have a hard time taking what you just witnessed, which is dirty and violent and brutal, and taking it into this boardroom of this, right. you know, technology center or where you're sitting around on these marble floors and cushiony things it, it, discussing it. You know, so I, I I think that perhaps these leaders we have in position now, you know, these these one, two and three star officers, they fought, you know, so they they know what it means. They they know what it's like to literally be up to your knees in, in blood and guts and, and continuing to drive on, you know. 
They know what it's like to take a life or, or, or to lose a man next to you. So I, th I think there's a different relationship there. You know, this generation of men that were controlling the outcome of the war back then, they, they never fought. You know, these these two and three star general officers that that ran Afghanistan and Iraq, they, they didn't fight. You know, so it's it's a again, this is me and my opinion. And, and, and these are the things that I'm wrestling with. And I hope that these men who are smarter than me, you know, and, and much more experienced in the geopolitics and, and uh, the strategic look, don't lose sight of this. Otherwise, we're going to repeat these mistakes and we're going to have this huge disconnect between the men and women fighting the tactical fight on the ground and what we think is happening strategically and politically. And we're going to lose again. We don't have a very good record. Well, certainly not in our lifetime. <laughs> not, I mean, you know, save these little excursions like Grenada and Panama. I mean, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan. We haven't won anything lately. And somebody needs to take a look at that. Yeah. And, and we don't, I mean, the last thing anybody uh, rational wants is war. Um, I, I don't think you, I mean, I, it sounds like you, and, and you should value those experiences, but you'd, you'd rather be, be writing a book in Oregon, right? Yeah, it's, it's a hard one to answer because, you know, those of us that feel that we were, we were born to, to, to go to war, born to fight. It's not that we want it, but it's like, it's, it's, if it's going to be there, we, we need to be there kind of a thing. Does it's it, like practicing it, a sport and, not, and never playing in a game. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to explain. And, you know, I, I'm working on a book, another book, a fiction book with a friend of mine, because you, you never could get this pulled, pull this off in nonfiction, but what, what, what we're trying to convey in, in this fiction book is war is still a viable decision. Violence is a viable decision, but, it, but there are no half measures. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you know, uh, I went to the army museum last year in, it's a brand new one up in, uh, up in Vir Virginia, Fort Myers or something. I can't remember where it's at army museum. So, just outside DC. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. Just outside DC. And, and you're, and you're going through the army museum and you're seeing the revolutionary war and the civil war and world war one and world war two. And, and you're talking about like total war, like we're in. You know, like the D-Day invasion, that was all the chips, man. We're in, you know, and then and then you get to Korea and Vietnam and, you know, the, the wars that I was involved in. And, dude, I was depressed because you, you, you can see this shift of like, look, we don't want to go to war. But if we're going to, we're going to bring to bear everything we can to finish this quickly and decisively. You know, I mean, think of. Think of the Civil War was four-ish years. World War II was four-ish years. A global war was four-ish years. We yeah. dicked around in Afghanistan for 20 years. You know, so warfare and violence are both very, very viable means of a political end or as a solution. You know, we yeah. just have to do it the way history has shown us succeeds yeah and i don't we, we could talk for hours about why uh we seem to as a society and the people that lead our government are are 
making decisions that end up just simply being half measures yeah. or not even half measures, quarter measures. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're absolutely right. Um, World War II, we put all of our chips in and, and it, we won and it didn't last as long as it could have. Like, could you imagine the Third Reich existing? Hitler exists. Hitler is trying to take over the world. He's got the Italians that are, I guess, helping a little bit. Uh, and then certainly the Japanese kept us busy in the Pacific. Could you imagine half measuring through that? No. We'd all, we'd all be speaking German right now. Yeah. And, and I get it. That was an existential threat. Vietnam... Afghanistan, Iraq, those were not existential threats to America. I, I get it. But with that being a fact, should we go in? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, do, it doesn't have to be an existential threat to go to war. But the, the, to me, the simple fact remains, if you're going to go to war, you're going to go to war and you're going to win it decisively and quickly. And and, and that's just not, not bargaining. And if you're not w willing to win it decisively and quickly, then all use all other means of diplomatic power and economic power to get what it is you want out of the situation. Yep. All right. I'm awkwardly transitioning to skull games. Yep. Um, are, are we effectively waging a war against sex, sex trafficking it, um, as, a, as a world? It's actually a good segue because it's the same thing. We talk about it and we aren't doing anything. You know what I mean? People yeah. want to, you know, people are, people get emotional about it for a minute or two. Uh, there is very little to any, like neg negligible dollars are going into countering sex trafficking in the United States. When you talk about the United States budget, that's that's looking at human trafficking. And that's a, that's the umbrella I'm using. So you have yeah. human trafficking. That's the that's the big umbrella. You split that in half. Part of it is sex trafficking and part of it is labor trafficking. So the preponderance of dollars that the U.S. is spending is going overseas and it's going into labor trafficking. And I have a very simple theory on that because if you can demonstrate that some sort of company is using violating labor laws, you have something to sue. You have something to take. You know, when you identify that somebody is being sexually abused, you don't have anyone to sue, you don't have anything to take. So we we have this this really crazy problem where we talk about sex trafficking and then conflate it to human trafficking and the money goes to labor trafficking and goes to overseas. So it's January with January human trafficking awareness month. It's, it's back on the spotlight, you know, and you'll have a politician stand up and say X, Y, and Z, and then we'll forget about it for the next 11 months. Um, we are losing. I've been at this for eight years. It's getting worse. It's growing. There is more younger people that are vulnerable and the other thing that we conflate, you know, we use these terms to to create emotion is pedophile, right? Oh, pedophile, pedophile, pedophile. Just like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, the pedophile. Look, Jeffrey Epstein had sex with underage girls. That's not a pedophile. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk and like mincing terms, but it's like, look, recognize when you're being manipulated. Everyone hates a pedophile because when you say pedophile, you're thinking of, of somebody, a grown man who wants to have sex with a, a prepubescent child. That's a pedophile. And they do exist out there, but it's not a big market. Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein was not, by definition, a pedophile. He abused underage women. He abused minors, and he, and he certainly abused women of age as well. And that's the thing that people keep conflating and mixing it up back and forth and back and forth. 
What we do at Skull Games is, is the underground commercial sex economy. There is an economy, a multi-billion dollar economy where women are being sold online. I say women and children largely so someone would listen to me, okay? There are children that are being sold, but it's very, very difficult to combat. And my argument is, just like the, 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 the tactician that I am in the military, let's go, let's get in where we can find it. You know, these women that are predominantly between the ages of 18 and 23, millions of sex ads a day are online. 150,000 new sex ads are introduced each day. Mm. That, that's our start point. That's our known point. So when we go in at these women that are being ad advertised for sale, we go one of two ways or both. We take a left and we start looking for the minors or we start looking for when these when these girls were minors, when they were first approached by these predators, or we take a right and we start looking for who it is that's exploiting them. You've got to get these traffickers off the battlefield. They have such a hook and they are so controlling of these girls in every way imaginable. And we can talk about a few of those that unless you're putting them away for a long time, you are not going to re restore these women they're, they're, they're broken and they're fearful and they just, they cannot have the space available for other things that come into play. Again, this going back and forth between these two pieces as a counterterrorism professional, I felt that my job was to bring the baseline level of violence down just enough. So other elements could work regular, regular military economic in, 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 uh, incentives, you know, all the, all these things, social incentives, all these other things. If there's a, a heightened level of violence where you can't even get someone in to repair the plumbing, what are we supposed to do? So that was my job was to get that baseline level of violence down. And we did our job, but nobody ever came back in. And that's the same thing we're trying to do with skull games is we're trying to get to this place where we can get the baseline level of, of violence down on, on these women that we've recognized and identified that are being abused by, by putting pressure on their trafficker or putting their trafficker behind bars for a period of well, short period of time or a long period of time. And it allows all of these other elements of power to come in to help her restore. So when we talk about trafficking, I consider Skull Games a counter-trafficking organization. I equate that to counterterrorism. When, when, when you were in the military, do you remember having to, to, to do the online anti-terrorism training where you kind of yes. walk through? Yeah. So just like I, I, I literally stole the definitions from uh, from the joint pub between anti-terrorism and counter-terrorism and, and equated it to counter-trafficking uh, counter, uh, and anti-trafficking. Anti-trafficking. Everyone needs to know what the risks are. Like you, you, you need to know what the risks are for yourself and for your family and for your community. And there's a, there's a lot of organi organizations that do that. It's not what we do. I'm, I'm a counter-trafficking guy, just like I was a counter-terrorism guy. We partner with organizations, uh, law enforcement organizations, and we provide them the, the right information at the right place at the right time to interdict this crime. And that's a very, very unique thing. And I think we're onto something that can scale at a national level. Uh, and before... I am done with this effort. I got another eight to 10 years in me, and then it's going to have to be uh, <laughs> off, off, uh, you know, riding off into the sunset. Um, I'm hoping that we've got something in place uh, to replicate it and keep it going. And so your organization is the only one that's really doing the counter trafficking. There's yeah. a couple, there's a, there's a couple that are doing things similarly. Um, I would go so bold as to say none of them, any of your listeners would be able to say, 
would would you know none none of them are that are well known. You know the 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 biggest loudest clanging gongs in the anti-trafficking space that claim they're doing counter-trafficking, they aren't. And I, and I just just ask people to show numbers, man. You know, I've got my numbers in front of me. You know, with the, the last six months of uh, of 2023, which was the um, that we really we, that's when we stood up independently as Skull Games. 73 guys, 73 predators are behind bars. You know, like, that's awesome. Hey, and this is the thing that I that I challenge listeners to do. When you are interested in any trafficking or counter trafficking, look, any trafficking, people that raise awareness, people that talk in schools, people that offer, you know, uh, restoration and safe houses for women, go for it. Got it. But if you're interested in counter trafficking and, and you're talking to someone or you're looking to an organization, have them show you their numbers. We we've we've put over 5,000 investigative hours into into law enforcement investigations, 5,000. 400 leads we've pushed. This is in six months. 400 leads, 200 of them have been have been developed beyond the case of probable cause, reasonable suspicion. 73 arrests, and our our biggest case, the guy got 249 years. Wow. You know, so I I don't know what else to say. You know, and 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 I I, I don't mean to sound a little bit grumpy, but I'm a little bit grumpy. Okay. I am a firm believer there is an infinite amount of support out there. There's an infinite amount of money in the United States for this. There is. I mean, the wealth that our country has committed, uh, um, created and the pockets of wealth around our country, it's not being applied to counter-trafficking. It's not being applied correctly. And it's being wasted incredibly on these organizations that are saying that they're doing stuff that they're not. Um, so again, people can be like, what's with this grumpy guy? Look, I, I'm grumpy because I've been at this eight years and I've been having to compete with these other organizations that are getting the lion's share of the press, the lion's share of the donations. And if not simply wasting it, being fraudulent with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know if you're going to get this out in human trafficking awareness month, but anyone who's interested in the fight, take a look at us, take a look at any other organization. And there's a couple out there that have solid numbers that are truthful numbers. Um, but also don't equate what's happening overseas with what's happening in the United States. Those are, those are two different animals. I can go to some third world country <laughs> and walk into the police station with a, with a pocket full of cash and start doing counter trafficking operations, you know, but to build something there that's worthwhile and has longevity, there are some groups that are doing that well to do that here in the United States. It's, it's its own monster. So you, you mentioned online and, and you're talking about, and it sounds like skull games is entirely and tell me if I'm wrong here, entirely oriented on us human trafficking. There have to be through online webs. There have to be connections to other countries, though. You just stop once once you run into another country or somebody that's a citizen of another country and not a citizen here, and they've never been to this country. Do you? Does the research stop? Does the effort stop at that national line? Yeah, no, it it, it doesn't stop, but it's not something we're pursuing. You know what I mean? So. We have there's there's a, a start point and an end point that, that we're working within. That start point is usually some sort of commercial sex ad or some sort of tip 
that this that this woman, this child, this boy is for sale. That's our start point. And because somebody is going to buy that person, there has to be some sort of connectivity, an email or a, a, a phone number or something. And they use VoIP and they 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 master emails. It's not it's not easy. It's it's a game. That's why it's called Skull Games. It's a game. We're trying to outrun them, you know. Yeah. So that's our start point. And the end point is getting that information to a law enforcement partner. So we haven't actively been recruiting partners overseas. We have some, you know, and we will over time, you know, as this as this grows and matures in the United States, um, I will pursue this in, in other countries as well. All you need for Skull Games to be effective is, is a functioning internet system where there's a commercial trade on the internet. If you have commercial trade on the internet, you're going to have humans being sold. Um, so, you know, any place that that's happened, now it's going to be more of the, of the developed world, you know, in Europe, in the West, I love to take our counter trafficking strategies to Israel, you know, in, 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 in some of those places. So by and large, when we do find something that has an international access, we'll, we'll push it to our, our federal friends, FBI or Homeland security, but because we're not really looking for it, um, we don't really see it that often. And there aren't really a lot of domestic traffickers, pimps that are running girls overseas, you know, not, not to include, you know, back and forth across the Mexican border. That's its own, its own little thing. Yeah. I'm so six months, 73 arrests. I mean, I, I would say, and you're learning all the time, right? You're getting better as each day and each week passes. And I say you, I mean the organization, how many folks work at skull games roughly? So there's two ways that we look at it. We call it Skull Games Incorporated. That's the staff. And and dude, we have we have four full-time staff. That's it. We have we have four full-time staff. That's all we can afford. I I would love to double that in 2024. Um but you know, that and it's it's really all of our overhead is salaries. I mean, it, in and when I talk salaries, that's programs, you know. Our Intel director, all she does is Intel. So when you're paying her salary, you're paying into our Intel program. Our ops, all that type of deal. So we have four full-time staff. We call that Skull Games Incorporated. And then we have another aspect of Skull Games that we call the task force. And that is where we have brought in a vetted crowdsourcing model. So we recognize there are talented people all across the United States and that have been trained in open source Intel. So OSINT is what we specialize in, open source Intel. And for people that don't know what that is, that's anything that sits on the internet that has been put there by yourself freely. You know, um, it isn't some proprietary database. You don't need a, a warrant or, or a subpoena to access that information. It's mostly coming off of social media. Now, there are things that leak, right? Like when some of these things leak, like when Ashley Madison, that website where all those all those people had those accounts that were having illicit affairs. When, when those when those emails and names leak, that's a treasure trove of information, because what people do is they have this secret life and there's a name. They have a, a name that they use you know, mm -hmm. a, a username or an email that they use. And then they have their real life. And that's what we're trying to connect often. And that's the mistakes that we're trying to find is somebody where that their secret life bleeds into their into their real life that we can see. So we have 400 uh, vetted volunteers as part of the task force. About 200 of them are actively engaged and about 20 of them are engaged every week. So we, we are hunting and supporting operations just about every week. It's usually virtually. So uh, a law enforcement partner that we have that's going to conduct an operation, we'll give them the start points that they need. We'll vet the information that they think they already have. And then we will be standing by. We use a Slack channel to do it. So 
if you were a cop and you were out doing an operation, we're, we're, we're connected just like you and I are right now talking five, eight people on the backside digging into this information. Um, we just had an op in Texas uh, last week. I don't remember the numbers on that. I think it was, I think five guys were arrested and three women were recovered. And then a couple weeks prior to that, it was, it was seven. You, that, that's about the time frame. That's about the numbers that we're looking. We've got a big event coming up in next week. So I take off tomorrow and the end of this weekend, we'll be hunting somewhere and we're expecting double digits for that. Um, and then, and then, and then kind of continuing on So we're, we're going we're on a two week hunting spree because it, um, it's, it's efficient and effective when we're able to do things virtually, but nothing's the same as meeting in person, you know, like the day, the day you and I get to sit and, and, uh, and drink coffee together in person is just a very different feel than having a relationship like this. Yeah. The, the, uh, the stream yard thing, the zoom thing and the whole virtual world, it, it's, you said it, it is, it is efficient, but man, it's, it's not fulfilling. Yeah. It, it really isn't. So that's why when, so we will, we'll have these, we'll support law enforcement just about every week. And then we have these big task force events where everyone comes together and it's almost like a celebration, you know? So our next one is in April. It'll be down in Tampa um, where we'll bring in, it'll be, it'll be a hundred, 200 people will all come in and then, and then we'll hunt. So we'll spend two days hunting on a Saturday and a Sunday They'll come in. We'll have the start points. We'll have the cities that we're hunting. We'll have the connectivity with the law enforcement. And then that's, that's again, one of the reasons we call it skull games because, because the teams will compete for the information, you know, who, who can, who can find the, the, the best information to protect and recover this girl, who can find the best information on this person of interest and pass that to law enforcement. So on a, on a weekend, you know, we're coming out with 50, 60, 70 lead packets to push to law enforcement. And that lead packet always has the the positive ID of the victim because that was our start point. And then about 30% of them were able to figure out who her trafficker is as well. Um, so that's what we're trying to find that balance is, is a weekly operational support and then a quarterly kind of celebration where we can all come together. Uh, and that's also where I open up the tent to any other organizations. If, if somebody's interested in this, we open up um, applications in February. So you can apply on our website to be trained in the OSINT and be part of the Skull Games Task Force. We put you through a, a background check and some different training events um, virtually, and then you come to the live event. Same with these other nonprofits that are working in this space. If you guys want to collaborate, it's very difficult to bring two organizations together, but it's why we've created this big tent of the Skull Games Task Force where we can come together over the course of a couple of days. You can learn to see what it is we do, uh, you know, whatever you want to share with us, and we'll both leave there much more uh, effective and efficient in countering this crime. Uh, you, you mentioned 73 have, have been arrested in, in the last six months of last year. Do you have any sense of, of how many traffickers there are in this country? Like out of three, what's the population of the U S three, 350 million now? Yeah. Um, probably somewhere around a hundred thousand, 150,000. I'm guessing. I mean, yeah. That's, so that's, yeah. I mean, it makes me nauseous to think about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. And, and they're all going to be at different levels, you know? So when I say a trafficker, that's, that's some people, it's the same as a pimp, right? So the, the, that's what we're, that's what we're looking at. And statistically a pimp has about five or six girls in, in his stable. So when you, when you look at this crime and you're like, okay, there's somewhere between 300 and a million women that are being sexually exploited. You do the backwards math on how many, how many guys would that be, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and then it's the same thing when you're looking at how many how many kids are involved. So that was the point I was trying to get at before when we were talking about pedophilia. The minors are are trapped in this because they're easy to manipulate. You know, so traffickers, pimps are looking for girls that are 13, 14, 15 years old because they're underdeveloped mentally and kind of socially, but they're getting to that development physically where they can pass her off as an 18 year old. So yeah. that, that really is that market when I talk about sex with minors and that's in that space that a guy like Jeffrey Epstein was working at. He was working in that space of, of girls that were 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, that's automatic trafficking. If a girl is under 18, it's an automatic trafficking charge. If she's over 18, then it's law law enforcement has to demonstrate an element of force, fraud or coercion in that, in that prostitution act. So that's another reason we hunt for minors as much as we can. It's just a much easier open and shut case for lawyers and DAs to prove. Yeah. How can people uh, learn more about skull games? So skullgames.io is our website. We've got a brand new one coming out here any day. This one we've, I'm, it's the one we have now is fine, but we, we cobbled it together. So uh, be, be on the lookout for that. Did we put out the Protect Your Family course on the last time we, we spoke? I don't think so. Okay, so we, we have a Protect Your Family course. It's an online course. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link to it and a coupon code. So any of your listeners um, that want that want to listen to it, um, I mean, if they, again, we're a nonprofit, and I think we charge 39 bucks for it or something like that as another funding model. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a coupon code for 100% off for your listeners. If people want to donate to the cause, great. Um, but it's specifically called protect your family because we talk about this crime and how you can protect yourself and your family and your community from it in a, in a, in some fairly reasonable ways. Yeah, no, it's great, and uh, yeah, I I hope that this gets out to a whole bunch of people. All right, let, let's. I don't have a great transition for your Delta Force time. Uh, I, I was thinking about you obviously earlier today because I, I was looking forward to this conversation and. Uh, I've, I've been through a few military courses, but nowhere near the number of uh, military courses you've been to. And I, and I think the list of courses that the Army offers, and, and forget MOS-specific stuff. If you take the MOS-specific stuff out, uh, I think the list is shorter of, of the courses that you have not been to. Yeah, I think that's true. I it is weird, isn't it? You know, like I, I talk about this with my buddies. It, it, it only seems, it feels not quite like yesterday, but maybe last month we were like, I want to do this. I want to do that. And then you, you know, you get to the, this point we were like, wow, I, I did it already. You know, I went to this event the other day. Um, I think it was back in October and I don't really like putting my uniform on that. Just, it just feels weird. You know, like maybe, maybe when I'm that really old guy, like in my seventies or eighties, you know, put the uniform back on, that'll be cool. Um, but I went to this event to honor veterans and a buddy of mine suggested, Hey, why don't you get those little mini medals? You know? So I bought, I bought some of the little mini medals and, and I, and I put them on my suit and it, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it's almost like writing, even the stories that I write in a book, it's, it's almost like a different character, you know? Um, and honestly, it's, it's kind of how it is. A, a friend of mine, um, he, he used to work at, at Wharton. He now runs a mission critical um, teams group. Um, Preston Klein is his name. He, he focused on these mission critical teams and, and how he defined this was a, a life and death situation in a compressed amount of time. So it was, 
it was surgeons, it was flight crews, it was the military, you know, and all these different people. Um, and then how that affected them and, and kind of how they would step into that. You almost become a different person. You're like that surgeon, what, you know, that, that ritual of like washing and then they enter the, the, the surgery, uh, the, the, the operating room. That's like a different guy, you know? And, and that's how, how it was in combat. Like when you would go into the, the kit room and you would put your body armor on, you know what I mean? Or you put your helmet on and you, you, you'd, you know, put magazines into your weapon and lock and loading. It's like you were, it was this ritual where you were turning into a different version of yourself. You know, I, I just came from jujitsu. It's the same thing. You know, it's one of the things I, I love about gi jujitsu versus no gi. You know, no gi, you show up with your shirt on and your in your shorts. But in gi, you put this uniform on and you put a belt on and you tie that belt and you you become this different version of yourself, you know. And I think that's where um, one of the things I'm going back to Preston Preston actually interviewed uh, actors because this, this method acting or these actors who they become this other character, they develop a post-traumatic stress, oh, you know, wow. you know, like they, let's say they play a villain, you know, or they play, play that they lost a child. Like they, they get so immersed in, in that character that when it's over, they they dream about it and they have pts about it and it was this interesting discussion between what a hollywood actor goes through on pretending he's this thing and actually what folks like us because in many ways i was acting right like it, i was a method actor like i put my i put my kid on and i was a delta force troop commander you know when i came home i was dad i was i was a husband i was you know i was a weekend soccer player or whatever so uh, th that's what I find interesting is is just these different personalities that you put on, um, and and then even getting more specific on what is that ritual to get from this version of me to this version of me, um, and that's another kind of line of uh, line of inquiry I'll be on for a little while. Yeah, and some of those transitions are not fast, right? Yeah, like tr transitioning when you you've gone overseas a countless number of times and when you come home that transition takes time yeah it, it does and i think yeah there's no two ways to put it i i, I think part of it is you know that that goes back to what we were talking about where i've always felt like i was a soldier if if, if there was a war to be had i felt like i needed to be there because I, I'm, I'm a person that can turn that on turn that off you know we 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 used to call it like flipping the switch, you know? So when, when you left work, you turned it off. You know, when you came back to work, you turned it on, especially when you went back and forth uh, to combat. And I, and I think that's also uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was how I coped with that was my faith. You know I mean? I, I leaned a lot on that Bible. You know, I read a lot of old Testament when I was overseas, because I could relate to it. I could relate to the violence. I could re relate to the vengeance. I could relate to this God that demanded justice, you know? And then when I would come home, I would read the gospel and I could relate to this God that was a father and, mm -hmm. you know, and all these things. And, and it was these, these, these two different worlds. And that's how I coped with, with warfare. A lot of guys, you know, they, 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 they drank alcohol, you know what I mean? Or they, or they did more risky behavior. They, they were skydiving and racing cars when they weren't in combat, you know, they were, they were chasing women, you know, and they, they, they were all of these other things that they were looking for to fill that hole. 
And um, I, I guess, I, you know, even as I'm saying it to you, um, as much of an adrenaline junkie I was or desired those things, somehow, some way, just kind of that quiet contemplation of the Bible, it, 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 it did it for me, you know? Right. And I think that's, that's a transition some of our men and women need to make still. You know, they're still, they're still chasing something that's dangerous. Um, and somehow, some way, that simple little Bible and those simple little stories and, you know, those legends and traditions and myths that all get woven in, it, it can, it can fill that hole. I don't, I, I can't explain it, but you, you, you know it too. Yeah. Uh, when you and I first chatted, I don't know, was it been three or four months, uh, you, you wanted to talk about, uh, the problem of suicide for veterans. Um, and, and you, and you said, look, my community, my the special operators, uh, that I've, I've known for, uh, decades in some cases, some of them are taking their lives like, like the conventional military, especially the army and Marine Corps. Um, and it seems to be getting, the numbers are, are worse now than they've ever been. Yeah. I think, I think it's because it just simply catches up to you and you get tired. You know, you get, you get tired of dealing with it. Um, we, as we age, our bodies don't handle it better. Well, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's harder for me to recover from a workout. You know, it's harder for me. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I got drunk because I, I, it would take me three days to recover from that thing. You know, even, even being in a room where somebody's smoking cigarettes, it's like, uh, you know, like I, you know, so just, just our bodies have a harder time recovering from it. Um, so I think, I think, and then there's a, a really a famous book uh, that the body keeps the score, which which is mm-hmm. is it's a, it's a it's a, a great book that describes how trauma it it sits in your body. You know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak in, about it in very very simple layman's terms. Violence that's enacted upon you, or violence that you need to enact upon others, trauma that you experience, your body you can you can hide it, you can pack it away in your mind, you can build your body but your body keeps the score. And at some point that scoreboard will show itself. And you, and you either, you either need to figure out how to, how to cope with that um, and bring that, that deficit back down, you know, or we've got too many men and women that are choosing to even that score by just ending it. Yeah. Um, And I, I think it's going to get worse than it gets better. And I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a, a doomsayer on this. Again, I just, I understand trauma and trauma is compounding. And, you know, when you talk about 20 years of war, there's this thing about trauma between 20 and 30 years that you just can't hold it back anymore. It's like whatever, whatever structures we build to hold back trauma begin to leak and break down. It's, it's, it's this phenomenon that you get all the time when, when these men and women come forward that were sexually abused as children, you know what I mean? They're, they're in their thirties and they were sexually abused when they were young kids, four, five, six, eight years old. Well, that you know, if, if you understand trauma and you understand why that's consistency, because those memories are coming back, whatever that bulwark is that they built to hold back that pain and that trauma, it's breaking down. And that's my fear is these guys that have been fighting since 2001, the height of it in 2005, six, seven, we're, we're getting to hit, we're getting to the 20 year mark on those big days. Uh, so I think it's going to get darker before it gets lighter until, unless we start talking about this and it, and people are, you know, this, you know, finding a, 
the spiritual grounding like you and I have found in the Bible is is definitely a way. Um, people are, are experimenting now with psychedelics. I've got a, I've got a whole bunch of buddies that are going down and and working the psychedelics. But the interesting thing is, you know what's happening when they're doing these psychedelics? Mm. They're hearing and seeing God. Uh. They're talking to God. You know, and they're and they're coming to the realization that there's something else out there. That there is this thing that that they can't describe other than it's love. It's an overwhelming love, and I'm just a tiny piece of this entire thing that I didn't recognize. So I, you know, maybe someday I'll do psychedelics. I mean, I, I you know, when 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 uh, people when those are my buddies that go to do go and do that one of the first things they they ask you is why are you doing this you know what i mean and and i have a very simple answer i want to talk to god all these dudes have talked to god they've had this experience you know so i may go do it someday just for this mere fact that i want to talk to god but the reality is i already do talk to god it's just not you know it's not in technicolor you know so all these all these guys that are going down i i um, I encourage them to dig into it. I, I've never heard anything but remarkable, remarkable uh, effects and impact on on these treatments that are out there. Um, but that and, goes away too. Yeah. Can we be specific? And well, I'll make your your broader point. Then specifically, what kind of psychedelics are we talking about? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but then when those go away, you still have habits to break, and you've got habits to make. And one of those habits that I think uh, guys need to make is that person that came to you that you talked to under the influence of those psychedelics, he left you a book, read his book, you know, yeah. and, and talk yeah. to him. Um, so I don't, I don't know all of the, all of the different psychedelics. I mean, there, there is, there is the ketamine, which is, which is one of the things that people are using. I don't even know if that's considered a psychedelic, uh, silo psilocybin. I think there there's, I don't, I don't know them off the top of my head, but, but, but most of them are, are either synthetic or they are basically the mushrooms, you know, and, yeah. it, and it's this, yeah. It's a uh, uh, the peyote or whatever. I don't even, I don't even know what they are, but there's there's a bunch of treatments now that people are um, are authorized to go and do. Um, so again, I don't want to speak on something I don't know. The the simple point I'm trying to make is they're seeing, feeling, hearing, and being touched by God, and is changing changing their lives lives, and spending time with Him in a quiet room, in a in a snowy morning. And a walk in the woods, a swim in a lake can can do much of the same if if you if you have that level of in, of intentionality. Yeah, yeah, no, it's well said. Uh, so <laughs> I always ask guys that have been through. You, you're actually my first guy who's been to, through the Ranger process, through the Green Beret process, and now the Delta. I know I know plenty of guys that have been through Ranger. I say plenty. They're not that many actually that have been through Ranger and uh, Green Beret. And I always ask them what, what was tougher from, from the very beginning of the Ranger process to getting through Ranger school. I don't mean any, any of the time in, in the regiment. Um, was that process tougher to complete or was it the Green Beret or was it the Delta? And if you don't want to answer, I understand. It's really difficult to answer, you know, um, because it, it, it was it was all it was all a different journey you know point in your journey you know when I when I joined the Rangers and, and I went to Ranger indoctrination program which I think was three weeks at the time they call it Rasma Ranger assessment selection program dude I was overwhelmed I was overwhelmed with the with the violence you know back then it was it was it was rough it was tough it was a lot of fighting 
you know, I was, I was, I was overwhelmed with those things. You know, like it was a huge cultural shift, you know, ranger school. I was very young. I, I was, I was in the ranger battalion, not, not long when I went to ranger school. So everything was new to me. So it, it's hard to, it's hard to equate these, these different things, but because then when, now when you get all the way to Delta force, it was like, this is, this is why I came back in was to, to go and do this. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Don't get me wrong. But by, by this point in time, I was an athlete. I was an ultra marathon endurance athlete. You know what I mean? The actual selection itself, the physical aspects of the selection, it, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't easy, but it was stuff that I had trained for and I, and, and I prepared for. But it was this idea of this. This is what I came. This is the culmination is to go to this unit. So you understand what I mean? It's hard to it's hard yeah. to, to, to take the physical difficulty with um you know kind of the 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 desire uh in in many of it because i because i was an officer when i went through sf and rasp and and uh selection for the unit you only get one shot you know so like that's that thing um and i say this in all humility i loved delta force selection i i would i would do it again without that pressure hanging over me of if you fail, you ain't coming. You know, that was the thing that's constantly driving you um, and that unknown. Yeah, so I, I get why you you don't want to pick one. I'm guessing the Ranger School ended up, at least from my objective outside view, was probably a little bit harder, not physically to your point, but just because you, you weren't prepared. Like, yeah. You had lived a good bit of life by the time you thought about joining Delta. Yeah, that's that's a good yeah you, yeah you picked up on that well yeah you, because yeah I had prepared like even by the time you know by the time I got to uh, the special forces Q course they they do this thing called uh, SUT phase I think small unit tactics where you're doing ambushes and you're doing all these ranger school stuff well that was like old hat even even when I went to um, the unit and we did some of these uh, extracurricular type experiences you know where you're working at you're going and, and linking up with a partisan you're going to the, these meetings and all this stuff i remember sitting down afterwards with the psychologist and they were like okay well what'd you think about this i was like oh, I, I really enjoyed it and they're like oh you didn't you know you didn't find it difficult i was like no i mean i just did this in iraq for real you yeah. know what i mean so I you know I, that that's the other piece is you know by the time i got to the unit i had i had spent a couple years in combat so you know like how do you how do you work all that the Again, it's very di it's very difficult to answer. Um, none of them are easy, and all of them are worth trying. Yeah, yeah. I love that answer. Look, we're, we're in there. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me again. I uh, I'll remind people of the book as we close here. There it is. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little YouTube short out there. I think from this, uh, I've, I've got to get my YouTube game going. It's not uh, it's not consistent right now. I get these audio recordings out every single week, but I, I'm not on the uh, YouTube train just yet. But uh, maybe this will inspire me to, to get there. And I'll send you the link to our Protect Your Family course to include uh, the coupon code to pass to your listeners. And uh, yeah, man, I don't. This is the only podcast I've done uh, too. So I appreciate that. I appreciate having me back. And, and uh, hopefully we uh, engage your listeners again. You've lived way too much of life to be limited to just one to one uh, podcast, <laughs> well, one visit. To yeah, that's podcast. True. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, when, when, once I started learning about you, I'm like, uh, yeah, he's, he's got a lot of things to talk about. You could come back a hundred more times and, and not run out of uh, things to talk about. Right. We'll do it, brother. We'll do it. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.